welcome to another session of PhD. Yo! Welcome to another episode of PhDivas. <laughs> this is Zanyao. This is Epic Fail, um, aka Liz Wayne. Oh, she's not. She's she's a, a little bit too self-deprecating. But yes, we are the PhDivas, no matter how you say it. <laughs> No, I always say PhD divas. I just can't get my own name right. <laughs> anyway, you know who we are at this point. Um, welcome to another session. Today, we're going to be talking about overlap in science. No, we're not talking about overlap in science. What's we're talking about, um, this is part of our ongoing conversation about our different research methods and disciplinary differences between the STEM, STEM and the humanities. So we had another episode where I was doing research at the Mutra Museum and the College of uh, the Library of the College of Physicians of Philadelphia, and then Liz also came along to the to the library um, to the museum on a later day, and so we talked about some of the research I did and things that she saw. And mm-hmm. now we're going to talk about when I got to visit her lab, which was a really exciting experience. Yes, it was exciting. It ended with a bang. It was great. Um, but why don't you tell me about what was the thing that most surprised you about seeing my lab? And first, let me actually say what we did so that will help you understand her reaction. I work in biomedical engineering, which in my case it was the interface between optical imaging and cancer metastasis. So I'm interested in seeing tumor cells in the bloodstream. I do a lot of fluorescent labeling of cells and imaging in live tissue. So you can, as an example, you can do a craniotomy, which is what I actually showed Zion, where you remove the skull, replace with a glass window, and you can image chronically for up to six or seven months, depending on how well the the window is kept. Maybe you should clarify what, whose skull are you talking about? So (laughs) I'm talking about a mouse skull. Okay. That's a good point. Um, Working with a mouse skull, the window is about, um, it's, smaller than the size of a dime. It's very, very small window. But in that window, if you label everything appropriately, you can see the vessels in the brain, you can see neurons, you can see all other sorts of cells that inhabit the brain like microglia and astrocytes, and you can also see cancer cells. So to, so on the day that I gave a tour design, I did a craniotomy and then we attempted to image and I started from the very top with her. So in terms of looking in the mouse facility, preparing the tools, doing the procedure, allowing her to see, and then eventually going into the laser room where we have to align all the equipment and, and do all of those things. So that being said, Zion, um, what was your impression when you first walked into the lab? So one thing I do have to share because it's the thing I kept raving about afterwards is floating <laughs> tables. They have a floating table. <laughs> Seriously. Um, but I think that connects to a lot of other things that it, it was just also a cool experience, but, and it def- definitely divided, it all definitely drew attention to the great difference in methodology, but also the difference in funding yeah. between our disciplines mm-hmm. in relation to that. Um, I think that Liz joked when I was going to the museum, like, oh, so what's the most expensive thing in this museum? Then? <laughs> so that was one thing I did ask um, the curators. Oh, when, really? Cool. When what, I was hanging out with them. It? The problem was that um, I was, and, I, and they said the, the thing that was most expensive was the Hurdle Skull collection that we'd mentioned earlier. Mm-hmm. And, but she couldn't remember how much it was offhand. When I was going through the curatorial files, I found how much they paid for it. 
but it was 6,410 Prussian thalers oh, in the late 19th century. So oh. I have no idea what the conversion rate is. So, so you'd have to convert lot. what the, the Prussian currency was at the time, perhaps into the US currency, and then find another online calculator to convert it to what it is in 2015. And at least mm. when I tried to Google that, like, Prussian dollar to dollar, current dollar, nothing came up. Um, if any of you guys out there might know some online calculators for this type of thing, definitely would appreciate it though. <laughs> but apparently it was quite a lot and like the um, the College of Physicians in Philadelphia really had to raise the money from, and, use, and the fellows really had to do a lot of work to raise the funds to get that. But in comparison, how much was the floating table lose? The floating table, I wanna say it's between 300,000 and and half a million. Yep. So it was very expensive. Actually, there was a point where I'm showing, I made the point of showing her different optics pieces and different things that make up our um, imaging lab. And it was all very expensive. Yes. So the objectives we use are maybe $20,000 minimum, I think. And She's, she looked at me and said, that's how much a student costs or something. Yes, in, in the humanities <laughs> anyway. Or it's just really interesting going around this wonderful, luxurious lab, which, and it's all necessary for the work, but also thinking about how we don't really have our own offices and that all the humanities people in the departments and all the different departments have to share certain spaces. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, this, the, the disparity in the funding is quite different. But then it's, but then I was trying to think on the positive side, like, even though we get so much less funding, we're still able to produce, um, so uh, so much research. I don't know if it, if I have to justify ourselves according to some neoliberal strategy of the university. Like, look at the bang you get for your buck out of the humanities, people. <laughs> but I, I really I'm very wary of going down that route. But I it was just an incredibly cool experience. Like Liz had always talked about the awesome things that she did did in lab. So I really appreciated being able to go into this space. It was so exciting for me uh, because. I mean, there was a time as a child that I was interested in being a, in a, a scientist, but then I never pursued it far enough along in my educational trajectory to go into an actual lab. So it was really interesting. Like going into the space was fascinating because it was... What was the laser room like? That's the laser often room? very overwhelming for people. I was thinking even before the laser room. So just the big blank white hallways oh, yeah. was exactly like a first person shooting game. Like when you have to go, oh, God. when you're fighting your way through a lab or an asylum or something like that. Yeah, very zombie that's apocalypse. not science. That is this particular architecture's <laughs> architect's um, issue where he has every building that he makes be white. And so every, every wall is white. Yeah, while hall is white because of that, the architect, but... It's really interesting because yeah. it seemed to me, it's almost seemed very symbolic of perhaps at least a certain ideology of sterility and purity mm -hmm. in terms of science, like was, was made aesthetically manifest through that. But yeah, the laser room was really cool because before she, we went in, Liz was like, you have to be careful because it is possible to like burn holes in your clothing because of the lasers and you could lose your eyesight. Yeah. Yeah. You always, the first thing about science is to actually understand what you're dealing with and understand the danger that mm -hmm. you're doing. I mean, I, I think before you even do any science, you should, you, and actually that is true, that you have to take a lot of classes. Usually they make them these online quizzes, but understanding chemicals, how to store them, how to use them. Um, they, call, they have this thing called PPE, so protective, personal protective equipment. And 
that's like the first thing you do and that's extremely important. So going into a class four laser room, you do need to understand that these are lasers that can burn your eye, that you don't want these stray beams hitting you in any way and you need to be careful and understand that. So sometimes that sounds really harsh for when you just tell someone that, but I find that being that kind of honest and that serious helps people be more doing so they don't hurt themselves. Mm -hmm. But yeah. I think that there's also something, I, of course I've read quite a bit of history of science texts because of, that's what I work on, but being physically in the room with um, current science was really interesting to me because, um, so uh, an iconic work in uh, science and technology studies is Bruno Latour's laboratory life, which is perhaps the first sociological study of what it's like to work in a lab and like mm -hmm. looking at not as um, looking at as part of what the sociology of the production of scientific knowledge is. And so I, which was really interesting, really interesting. Um, and he really laid the ground for, for the field. But then it was very interesting for me to be in the space and be like, wow, now I'm part of, the, I see what the real laboratory life is like. <laughs> um, yeah. And some, so much of it was very pretty. Like a lot of the optics that you're showing us were very rainbow colored. Oh yeah. Oh, the reflective properties of this dichroic. Oh, maybe we should also explain, like, so the, the floating tables were also part of the optics room. And so the question that everyone asked me when I was like, they have floating tables, is like, so why do they have floating tables? Do you want to answer that, Liz? Absolutely. The floating tables are to reduce the amount of vibration that happens. So when you're imaging, you want everything to be very still. And that's because the, the equipment they were using to measure it are measuring very small volumes and so if something is shaking and your measurement is very small you're going to be able to detect that measurement and you don't want that kind of noise to be larger than your actual signal so the floating table will I guess counterbalance the noise that you have in your in your environment so any vibrations someone walking by you or let's say someone else is pressing on this table another way the table kind of floats so that it, you know, it's, it um, can stabilize itself and then that vibration doesn't affect your imaging. How does it float? So you don't see like little shaking things. It's actually floating on air. So the, there are poles and these poles have this air that you're pushing through it. So if you push down on the table, you'll, you'll hear this noise. Actually, yeah, Zion loved that noise. I know, because as soon as she, I was like, yes, have to push on the floating table. Yeah, yeah, and, and that, I mean, that, maybe that's another thing. When I was showing her things, I'm so used to seeing them, so they weren't as impressive looking to me as when I was showing her, and then she really just couldn't leave that floating table yes. for at least 30 <laughs> to 30 seconds to a minute, and I'm like, well, you know, this table isn't really what's important. It's what's on top of the table, like these lights, these lasers, these high-class, you know, femtosecond lasers that make the... Um, the pulse that we need to get two photon microscopy. So, so that was interesting to see how other people appreciate the science or the the tools that you do to solve the problems that you're trying to solve. Also, what's cool is when we're talking about it afterwards. Um, one of our friends, who's a physicist, Phil Burnham, mentioned that there's actually a whole floating room on Cornell somewhere. Mm -hmm. Yeah, in Clark Hall. Yeah, it might be in Clark or it might be in Duffield. But there are, again, you don't, there are some rooms that are so specialized that they also block out um, electromagnetic waves. So think of your, the waves for your cell phone. 
um, especially when you're doing like electrophys measurements or something that's already electrically sensitive. Again, you don't want noise to make, if you're trying to measure something that's really small, really faint, you don't want the noise to be bigger than your actual signal. So there are rooms that block out all sorts of communication, both like vibrations and um, electrical signaling so that you can get a really precise, really pure measurement. And I, I would say that's a, the interesting thing to think about with science. The tools become very important to what you're trying to study. And we've been interested in a lot of the same things over time. But what's changing is we have tools that are more sensitive. So there are ways in which we may be trying to re-answer questions that we've answered before, and we're getting more complex information because we have tools that can go smaller, deeper, longer, faster, any error that you want. And as you go into these smaller depths, what that means, unfortunately, is sometimes the techniques and the tools, the instruments you use to do it get more expensive. And... They also become more complex, which requires interdisciplinary studies. And so maybe, um, since we've been talking about the funding disparity between our disciplines, maybe it's also useful to give people here a little bit of insight into what the state of grants are like in your field, because I know it's, it's been very difficult that the amount of funding has been greatly cut for the sciences in the U.S., correct? Yeah, so I'll, I'll talk in terms of the NIH with National Institutes of Health. National Institutes of Health, this is where... Uh, the government's large source of funding for all health, um, disparate health diseases. And I will say that in the 1990s, there was a big boom. And I think NIH funding doubled. And in that time, you saw a lot of the increase in hiring of postdocs and graduate students. You saw more tenure-track tenure jobs opening up, more buildings being created because they had this funding and then into the early 2000s that bubble burst but so the NIH funding started decreasing but you still had all these people in the pipeline who were about to be scientists but didn't have jobs you had buildings that couldn't be filled by people and um, the, I think what we're seeing now even in an add into that the 2008 recession is that NIH levels of funding have not been able to, I'm sorry, the NIH levels of funding have not been able to catch up with the demand of the PhD market. So a lot of, there are a lot of PhDs, and funding is very competitive these days. There are a lot of people, even um, tenure faculty, who have a hard time getting R01 grants, and R01 is the gold standard NIH grant. It's a thing like if you have an NIH, if you have an R01, you kind of made it in life as a scientist. The average age for an R01 is 43. And that's important to think about because, in, in essence, people don't really make it in their career. They're not really stable in terms of having a source of funding until they're in their 40s. Mm -hmm. So that's really stark to think about. That's grad school. That's multi probably multiple postdocs. Um, I think only 18% of graduate students actually end up in a, a tenure-track position. Yeah, not to mention all the considerations there about, like, what if you wanted to have a family? What if you have a family that you love mm -hmm. and want to be around? What if you have a partner mm -hmm. waiting, getting until you're 43 years old? Yeah, and quite often there's this divide. People in the sciences like to talk about... So there's a the obvious what we're talking about. There's a money divide, so... 
some science, it requires more money because of the tools that you need um, and the grants they give you to support that. But even though we have more money, there's still issues in science that people don't like to talk about or they just don't, they aren't quite aware of them because it looks like we have more money. And, and I'm not saying we don't, but like at the numbers, we clearly do. But there are also issues with, with funding for the sciences as well and the availability of an actual job mm-hmm. for people with this degree. Yeah, so one th- Personally, I'll just mention this quickly because it's a huge issue, but it really does irk me when we are thrown into this STEM versus humanities binary in terms of uh, academia and academic jobs because, like, oh, why didn't those stupid humanities people study STEM? It's like, well, it's not that complicated. Also, you're trying to put us against each other when actually it's an overall structural Mm -hmm. um, problem of institutions and of of society that affects both of us. And so I think it's something that we really need to work across our disciplinary divide about rather than letting them divide and conquer us. So one, some other things that I found interesting weren't so necessarily related to the science in your lab, but I really found it interesting, like the little ways that you guys use humor in your space, oh, like little yeah. signs and uh, diagrams that you put up, like there's a sink, um, oh, one God. of the rooms, <laughs> um, I guess it, often used for dissection. Is it a dissection yeah, room? Yeah, a surgery room. Um, a surgery room, and there's this big sign over the sink saying, no feces in the sink, please, or something yes. like that. And then someone had wrote over it, no shit, aha. Uh-huh. Yeah, it's <laughs> so... With any place that you work in, if it's just you, great. You've got the whole space. No one answers you but yourself. Two people. Okay. You, maybe you have conflicts, but you, you can somehow say, you say on your side, I'll say on mine. But when you have 30 people, it's bound to happen that it's going to take a large amount of time to manage, that, manage, that resor- manage those resources that you all have to share and the talent. So sometimes we get depending on who's saying it, we get a little upset with each other. We get a little punny. You know, we have little signs. Sometimes we get passive-aggressive. Most times we say humorous in the cleaning up. And it's just really interesting to to see how that works because there's a human side to it. Yes, and anytime yeah. you're working with people, you're going to get this. Any office space is going to be just like what it is in that science lab because mm-hmm. we are people too. Yeah, so I thought it was really interesting that obviously – it's not just the resources are available, it's also about time and space, it's about the, the PI's project, the graduate student's project, the undergraduate's project, who gets priority, how do you manage these social relations, how do you manage this time, how do you negotiate okay. with the mentoring, how do you negotiate with um, the power relationships there, um, people's different degree demands, like in this space there's so much going on um, other than just like the pure pursuit of science, like it's messy. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's very messy. Most days it's Fun. What I like about my lab space and the people I work with is maybe I'll backtrack for a second because what's really important to know that the daily life of a scientist is about failure. We are failing all the time. There's an experiment that we're trying and it doesn't work for a multitude of reasons. But it doesn't work and then you try again, doesn't work, you try again, try again, you keep trying, and then it works, and you're excited, but then you go back to like, oh, okay, I have a new task, it didn't work, I, I tried again, I failed, and so a lot of what, what I like about being in my lab and, and the people I work with is that when it's failing, um, they keep you motivated, they keep your spirits up, it's, 
it ends up being this humorous thing, you know. People know when something didn't work because you walk into lab and you look all down and they know either not to talk to you for like 10 or 20 <laughs> minutes or they talk to you and then, you know, offer you a beer or something. So, so that's a good side of it. I feel like we could do a whole episode about failure at some other point, but, yeah. but I think this is a good way failure to start. Failure is such a big part of science. Such yeah. a big part. It's so, science is not this process that just always works or that you always know what path you're taking and I think it's also sort of funny to mention although we may get it to it more in another episode I feel like that's part of the reason why we see this proliferation of funny hashtags like overly oh, honest yeah. methods hashtag, yeah. uh, like um, field work fail and stuff like that because as much as science may from the um, there's a lot of people invested in this narrative of science this pure objectivity pure progress there's also this other drive that people are like, no, this is what it's actually like. It's messy. You have to recognize that these things are messy mm-hmm. and perhaps it's better to acknowledge that there is failure. There's, there's a lot of things that go wrong. Um, and this is like a more a- accurate idea of what the met- uh, scientific method is like. Yeah. Yeah. Overly honest methods is, it's quite humorous. I love it. Um, overly honest as in you read a paper and it tells you the protocol they use but they don't tell you why they did it and sometimes it can be well it's always very difficult to replicate someone's protocol um an example some but this was a way to make light of the reasons why things are the way they are like there's a 30 minute incubation period because i had to go to the bathroom and i had to eat lunch (laughs) you know um you're supposed to shake this because I dropped it once and picked it back up. Like, random little things like that that make it really funny. Also, the Tumblr, what we should call grad school. It's oh, yes. amazingly yes. funny. It's, it's a website compiled of um, sim- submissions sent by graduate students, and they're usually, like, these gifts of situations that happen that I have, at least in the sciences, I found very universal because... Mm-hmm. Every student can relate to that on some level of being in that position or knowing about them. And there are very few of them that I find that are something that I can't relate to. Yeah, even I've gone through that. Um, like, obviously, not everything relates to a humanities student, but yeah. like some of it does really speak to the graduate school experience. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, it's something else that also touched me when we went into your lab space that we were walking down the initial corridor and there was a newspaper clipping of you. Oh, yeah. And you mentioned that the curatorial staff had put it up. Yeah. Yeah, I... Some research that I had done got a lot of publicity around Cornell, but also around the world. And I was... One day I came into lab and I saw that they actually put that newspaper up. And I, I speak to the staff because sometimes there was a time in my life that I actually came in early enough that I was always saying hi to the staff. They they come in like at 4 a.m. and maybe I came in at 8 or something, 7 or 8, and so we chat because we're the only people in the building. Um, and they, they would say like, oh, you know, I saw that you were in the paper and I was really proud and I would tell my friends and everyone I knew that I actually work with this person who's doing this cancer research and it made me think about my scholarship in a different way as a form of um, community engagement because they were interested in this and they were taking some sort of ownership. They felt more pride in cleaning the building and working with the staff because they felt like they were contributing in their own way by helping this building still run and look presentable. Mm-hmm. So I thought that was very interesting and something I would always remember. Also, in general, you should always treat everyone nicely. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that's not why I did it. That's not why I say hello to them every day. 
But you really should treat people with respect, especially the people who work under you, because their jobs are important, and you should let them know that your jobs are important. Yeah, they're part of the community. It's mm -hmm. collaborative process. Um, it's sort of like how they say that if you go on a, da a first date with someone and the person's rude to the server, you really know something about them. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Also, I feel like one thing I really took away from it was you, Liz, which is that I got to really see your awesomeness in a new light. And I also really appreciated how, like, you just knew so many people and said hello to all these people and had some small tidbit about their life. And maybe it's not representative of all scientists, but, like, you yourself seem to do so much work in terms of building community across so many different people in the building. Um, yeah, my research is, has a lot of different levels. What I'm doing, when I really step back and think about it, it's extremely complicated. And a lot of the times why things are failing is because if I have my animal working, the lasers break down. If the lasers are perfect, I messed up the surgery or we're out of this product or I just didn't understand some, some sort of concept. And so it's really been helpful to be on a name basis with the animal care staff, to be on a name basis with all the other grad students who may be more familiar with the optics than I am, or someone who may know how to do this surgery, someone who knows how to section tissue or whatever current problem I'm having. And um, I don't know, it, it helps me survive because my life isn't always nice and fun and easy and yeah. I like being around people. And I think it really goes against like the way we often teach history and history of science is like this history of just great men, these lone geniuses. But here it's like so much a part of being a community. There's this, no lone yeah, genius. This is like about an ecosystem of people supporting each other when sometimes a conflict and collaboration. I think the last lone genius might have been Isaac Newton. And just because that back in those times People, one, to be able to study meant that you didn't have to have a real job to sustain yeah. yourself, right? And then the way people were teaching was you were learning from somebody, reciting things, or, or you're reading lots and lots of books. And, I, and again, what I was sort of talking about with learning more about things means you have to have more sophisticated equipment, which means you have to eventually know more and more, and it becomes more expensive to do those type of things. I just think in this day and age, it's actually pretty impossible to do research by yourself that's also great and mm -hmm. impactful. That's just not going to happen because there's no way that you're going to understand how most people, let's just as an example, most people who know the science don't know how to fix the instrument that they're using mm -hmm. um, or they, don't under, they may not understand this other technique or there's some other field that makes what they're doing make a lot more sense. And so everything these days is so interdisciplinary that if you're working by yourself, you're actually disservicing yourself. And you're, not only will your career not go for it, but your science won't be as great as it could be. You're not, it's not as, as illuminating. Mm -hmm. So this whole lone genius thing is not really applicable. And, and also, as a, oh, a last comment, I was just thinking about undergrad where I studied physics and I wanted to study physics because I loved it but as most people find you get into physics and it's difficult there's a lot of things you have to learn there's a lot of skills you need to help you be good at it so if you as an example if you are already very good at math if you understand you know Green's theorem and all these other sorts of mathematical manipulations, then when you do physics, it's going to be, be easier for you to understand the math because 
the math or the physics problem and understand that and solve those problems because you already have the machinery to do so. It's sort of like if you can already speak English, you're halfway there to having a conversation with someone who also speaks English. But if you don't speak English, even if you understand what they want, you don't know how to communicate it to them. And I say that to say that I was struggling in physics and I had this physics professor who I would kind of talk to and and I would think, well, maybe this means I shouldn't be doing physics. And eventually he said to me, there are no virtuosos in physics. Physics is hard. Perseverance is the only thing that's going to really get you through. If you love physics, you should keep trying it. It's a work of, not a work of art, but it's, it's something you have to work on and work towards. But there are no, no one's just naturally good at physics. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I feel like that's an issue we should really go back to. So thinking about failure, but also maybe I think a, an attendant part of that is like, what is the public face, perhaps of the history of science, public face of, of science communication? Mm-hmm. And how does maybe um, having certain famous spokespeople maybe do a disservice because it has to necessarily downplay the collaborative aspect. But I think those are topics And there's always somebody, time. even if yeah. there's the face of some research, there's always someone who actually did the experiment or, or really worked through the fine the little details. <laughs> yeah, there's always a Rosalind Franklin to a, a crick. Oh, James, James Watson? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, Watson and Crick. Watson and Crick, yeah. Which one's the really terrible one? I don't know. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but I'm glad that you saw the lab and you I was so excited to got go to there. see things. Yeah, it just put so much into perspective. Like, even doing the surgery was really interesting because um, uh, animal experimentation, animal vivisection was such a huge ethical, political topic in the 19th century. Mm-hmm. So, it, like, it helped to put a lot of other research and reading I've been doing into other perspective. Thank oh, you so really? Yeah. It, what perspective? Oh, it just, well, I think it's sort of complicated. I haven't completely sorted it out for okay. myself, but okay. um, it definitely, I mean, seeing the thing itself is very different than reading it, but it's to, okay. to get into it. Got it. Lightly, but it was absolutely fascinating. And thank you so much for inviting me to be a part of your world. <laughs> <laughs> well, welcome to my world. I'm glad that you liked it and you didn't walk away screaming. <laughs> I don't know why I kind of had this idea that like this is is this going to be too much or too little but do you even know me I, yeah maybe yeah. I don't know you at all yeah. anyway I do know you it was fine it was wonderful and lovely and you're welcome to come back any other time yes <laughs> and thank you very much Liz and this was another episode of PhDivas I'm Zanya this is Liz Lang and you could catch us iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud Twitter, Tumblr, Facebook, all those sort of good things. Hear you from you soon. Take care. See you.